Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. Fighting for digital services market share in developed markets can be uphill sledding. But what if what you're offering has no legacy competitor to displace? I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Melina Haddad and I speak with Greg Moran, co-founder and CEO of Zoomcar. Zoomcar runs a ride-sharing marketplace in India, where traditional short-term rental options are rare. It announced a $456 million combination with Innovative International Corporation in October. Greg explains how Zoomcar has quickly built a strong position in the market without heavy marketing spend and while maintaining a 40% take rate on rides rented through its platform. He also lays out which market Zoomcar is zooming to next and how it will use the proceeds of its back deal to get there. Take a listen. So, Greg, the SPAC watchers who listen here have seen ride sharing with scooters and car sharing in North American markets and deals that have come here before. But what do you think is the most important thing to keep in mind about the differences between sort of the North American market and India and some of the other markets where you're present? Sure. Well, certainly with emerging markets like India, Indonesia and some others that we operate within, I think it's it's really all about just sort of framing the the, the problem statements of day to day urban life and, and comparing those relative to what you see in West cities. So uh, the reality is that you have, unlike in, in Western cities where you have 70, 80, 90% car ownership rates, you have 5, 10, 15% car ownership rates in emerging market cities, particularly those in India and Indonesia. And, and so at the, at the end of the day, that's what makes us such a, a different opportunity, a compelling one, because people simply don't have access to a private car every day. And the need statement is at least two or three times a month, they would like to have access, but they don't have means to access. So they can't afford a private car. They can afford to buy a car. And it's not, frankly, it's, it's not that convenient to own a car, but they would like to have that car. And so, so that fundamental problem statement use case is much more ubiquitous in the markets that we operate in. And we have to design the product experience accordingly. Yeah, no, I, I really want to get into all of those specifics in terms of how your business works with the, the consumer and the host provider of the cars. But but first, you know, just kind of looking at your materials and, and the timing of everything, you, you've specifically seen a big consistent shift in net contribution you're getting per booking in the, over the last year. Was that part of what prompted you to see Zoomcar as ready for the public markets? And sort of what were you, what were some of those kind of the, those signs that you were looking at an inflection point here? Sure. Well, I think we've been on this marketplace journey now for several years, and you know, we we had started kind of transitioning our model to a full marketplace just prior to COVID, and then of course COVID came along, and you know we took a bit of a pause for for twelve months or so, uh, like like most folks in mobility. Um, but then when we came out, you know, past the second wave of, of COVID, uh, back about eighteen months ago, we have seen uninterrupted sort of nonstop growth and huge secular cyclical tailwinds uh, to the business and all of our geographies. And along those lines, we we've seen just a massive boom in domestic travel, domestic tourism in all of these countries, and particularly in India. And so on the back of that, we've seen a, a fundamental material shift in usage patterns more towards uh, sort of two to three day, four day trips from kind of typical one day, two day trips. And so as a result, you know, that's allowed us to, to realize much higher average transaction values. And so, you know, that on the back of the much higher transaction values that fundamentally allows for much more sustainably profitable model in terms of our contribution margins at a booking level. And that translates to a clear path towards a really meaningful, successful, sustainable business. And so I think that's really what prompted this broader push. 
And so just going off of that, it looks like from your materials that your customer usage is fairly evenly split between major cities, suburbs, and non-urban areas. What do you know about who's using ZoomCar and how? Sure. So I think with respect to ZoomCar, so we, we operate in 50 plus cities in India, and then you know, we, we operate in each of the big major metro areas in Indonesia, Vietnam, and, and Egypt. And India still constitutes well over 90% of our business. So I'll speak more to India, but we, we have within India, we have a presence in about 50 cities. And, and so within that, you know, we have, I would say about 80% of the, the business uh, volume is, is consistently in and around tier one cities. So these tier one cities are all 15 million plus uh, effectively people. So very large metro areas, much larger than even New York. And, and so as a result, there's just this incredible density and this huge opportunity. So the, the indexation is very much on the tier one cities. And so when we think about the usage profile, it's overwhelmingly from people who live and reside and work in these cities. So there's really not really a concept of, of suburbia in you know, these emerging market cities per se. But what you end up seeing is that uh, typically about you know 35 40 percent of the trips end up going uh, outside of the city uh, and then you typically see about you know 25 30 percent going kind of to the outskirts of the city and then the the, the remaining balance you know typically just stays within the city uh, roaming around to different localities and, and places of interest so so that's kind of how we see that overall now on the weekends you certainly see people going outside uh, going out of the city more frequently uh, whereas in the city is more frequent during the weekdays so that that's probably fairly intuitive in terms of just how people think about leisure versus work travel, but that's certainly something that we see on a consistent basis across our markets. Got it. And then looking at the host side of things, how much of your car supply is coming from people who are effectively renting out their only vehicle versus those who are making a broader business out of it? Right. So that's a really important question. And in terms of drawing that distinction, of course, it depends market by market. So country by country, city by city. But I think at a, at a broad level, what we find is that usually about sort of 75 to 80% of our hosts are more what we call more like retail, uh, part-time, uh, more transient hosts who are more kind of white collar-ish by nature. And, and they're looking at this as, as more of a sort of a part-time opportunity. So they're going to you know, be sharing the vehicle on the platform 5, 10, 15, 20 days in a month. And then the balance of time they'll be using the vehicle. Vehicle. And and so the balance twenty twenty five percent are are actually more kind of full time all in entrepreneurial small business mindset guys uh, who are looking at this as a more of a maximalist position where they're thinking about okay how can I do as well as possible how can I add more cars how can I refer more people how do I build a small business so yeah that's the broad split we see. And I think if you look at you know, other platforms like an Airbnb or like a Turo, uh, you know I, I think it's it's probably not so different. Yeah, I'm interested in how that sort of affects, uh, you know, where what your car availability is in, in certain areas. And, and from that approach, I mean, I guess, do you have a preference in how you scale between more a whole bunch of small scale users versus maybe enterprises investing in whole fleets to make available in, in like one location? Right. So in general, we don't really work with traditional rental companies. And that's also partly because traditional rental companies, sharing companies don't exist in our markets. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's very different. You know, if you look at India, you look at Egypt, you look at Indonesia, these these markets just don't have conventional traditional rental like Hertz, Avis Enterprise, Zipcar, Turo. These players don't exist there. And so 
as a result, it, it's like a long tail of offline mom and pop sort of supply. And, and so our preference is actually to work more with sort of individual retail hosts that I had cited earlier, along with people who are kind of more broadly around the shared economy. So people maybe who've you know, actually hosted on Airbnb or, or worked as a small merchant with some other e-commerce platform. So, so th this is kind of a little bit more in the consideration set for us, as opposed to, to looking at these sort of more traditional sort of car rental guys who would operate uh, accordingly. Sure. And you know, you saw an interesting thing happen in the middle of the last year when you started cutting your customer acquisition costs down to practically zero. And you also saw your average transaction value soar. So what prompted that change? And is that sustainable moving forward? We believe it is, uh, for sure. And, and so as, as highlighted earlier, I think these secular or sort of cyclical trends here uh, have, have actually been you know, very much uh, sort of embedded in, into the, the overall model. And so I would say the, the preference and the shift more towards that two, three, four day booking, that's uh, something which we believe will be there into perpetuity. And so that's fundamentally what underpins the higher ticket sizes that have grown by about 2x over the last couple of quarters. So I think that's very much present. Because uh, if we look at the broader addressable market for those two day, three day, four day trips, I mean, you're talking about tens of billions of dollars of opportunity uh, across the geos that we operate in. So I think there's there's no doubt for us that that's very much sustainable. It's all about having the product reflect in the right way and, and share that value proposition for those guests and hosts. So I think that's very much there. And when we think about the the overall sort of acquisition costs associated to the other point there, I think ultimately it's about that product excellence. And if you have that product experience, which is really, really strong in terms of retention, which we do see in terms of very strong levels of retention for guest and host, uh, I think ultimately that's what creates the network effects and the flywheel. And that's what creates the word of mouth halo. And when you have that word of mouth halo, that means that you see people talking to their friends, their family, loved ones, you know, workers, et cetera, coworkers, and then they go on social media, they go refer people, you know, they add more cars themselves, they use more. So I think that sort of virality is, is what really powers it. And I think that's what the product experience and the MPSs that we have, which are MPS, is actually 2x plus you know, the industry standard. Uh, for our business. And, and so that's really powerful, which I think tells you about the retention and the, the overall sentiment levels for the platform. And that helps drive more and more virality and organic growth. Right. And so, you know, in your materials that you estimate about 40% of the global market opportunity for this kind of car sharing is in India, and yet you're looking at expanding markets as well. So how are you balancing your approach between the two? Sure. Well, I think that's an important question. And I think right now, We've been in India now for the better part of a decade. Uh, so we certainly have quite a bit of, of local market understanding at this stage. And Indonesia, Vietnam, and Egypt have been about a year. Uh, and so the, the way we see this is that uh, India, the, the product market fit, and the, the overall sort of flywheel network effects are very much embedded and growing. Uh, of course, there's a lot of wood to chop. There's a lot of work to do still in India as we scale. And we believe we can scale still many folds uh, over the next couple of quarters. But... I think the opportunity now for us uh, as we become really a global platform is very much kind of like many other marketplaces, global marketplaces that faced before us, which is making sure that we're able to start hitting some baseline viability of, of density of scale in these other markets and, and start to build the same sort of flywheel network effects. And so I think ultimately we will be starting to you know, allocate more and more capital, as I mentioned, uh, probably towards the back half of the year into next year in terms of investment into these new geographies. And right now your split with vehicle providers is 60 to 40 with Zoom card taking 40%. Do you think you'll be able to maintain that across new markets? And do you see that changing with increased competition? 
Yeah, so I think for now, the 60-40 rev share, we believe we are actually quite confident that we'll be able to hold the line on that for the foreseeable future, uh, meaning that in all of the existing markets as well as the new markets, we, we should be able to command that. And I think it's really all about the relative value we provide to our hosts. And at the end of the day, you're doing that in a way which is still going to be competitive and compelling for the guest. And so what we find is that the, the hosts with the 60% take, they're able to still generate meaningful economic opportunity over the span of several months. Uh, and I think that's ultimately what gives us the conviction and confidence that the, the the take rate will hold and we'll be able to maintain that level as we go ahead. Keep in mind that you know, I think there's also a number of opportunities for us over time to better capture additional sort of rent, so to speak, uh, as it relates back to the value that we provide our guests and hosts in, in terms of creating this ecosystem. So as we provide more value-added services to both guests and hosts, they will be able to certainly command premiums for the same. And I think that's ultimately going to flow back as we think about the ticket size and the, the ultimate uh, transactional take rates, et cetera. So we believe there's, there's considerable value that we can still extract, but I think our, our take rate, we would uh, likely expect to say the same. And sometimes it kind of winds us back to, uh, I guess, the company's readiness and kind of the, for the public markets and, and kind of how you wound up um, looking at SPACs a bit. And I'm interested because one of the things that was mentioned in your materials as well is, is an interest in engaging in strategic M&A as a part of, you know, the impetus for this deal. And so just, you know, looking at, you know, the advantages that you'll have as, as a public company in doing that, I'm interested in, in sort of your thoughts on that as well as just given the fact that you're already an asset light platform, what do you specifically hope to gain from those sorts of buys? Sure. So just going back to the, the, the SPAC for a moment. So I think what's interesting for us, uh, you know, we might be a little different in this vein, but you know, frankly, you know, candidly, we were never looking to go public, whether it was an IPO, whether it was a SPAC, that was never really on the radar for us uh, last year, but it was something where we were introduced by you know, an investor to Mohan and Madan, the, the sponsors of Innovative, and things just really clicked. And you know, we always viewed the team at Innovative as much more of like a long-term fundamental investor and very different from you know what we had seen in you know kind of you know just other third-party you know interactions with other SPAC sponsors or other folks out there. You know, we were we were never running a formal process or anything like that. So I think it was very organic. Uh, and I think usually the best relationships are very organic. And I, I think the alignment, the meaning of the minds that you know we have with the team at Innovative, it, it certainly helps that both of the, the sponsors there come from India, born, raised, and grew up and operated in India and you know, understand the, the differences. And of course, they're in the States now, but they really get emerging markets. And I think they're fundamental medium-term, long-term guys uh, who understand the value opportunity in the TAM, the addressable market for India in particular, as well as Southeast Asia and beyond. So I think that was really the reason for us to, to go to go down the path here uh, with with these folks, and you know, we we thought there was a great union that we could build and really something very compelling together. So that was the the point on on the SPAC side. I'm happy to articulate more points there, though. On the M and A point, we, we've talked about the ways in which you know you're able to operate this in such an asset light manner. You have your own internal tech, but so I guess what are some of the things that you're looking at from that M and A approach? Is it are you trying to grab market share? Is it as a tech pieces? What are some of the strategies there? Yeah, so sure. I mean, if you look at it historically for us, we, we actually, the company, have never done an M&A. So just to, to be transparent on that front, you know, it's, it's not something that you know, has been necessarily in our DNA. Uh, of course, you know, we consistently look at opportunities as they come up. But I, I think for now, we are in the immediate term where laser focused on building out our product, really continuing to refine that, grow that, scale that 
so that we can meaningfully grow supply across all of our markets this year, so that we can hit our broader volume numbers and hit our broader profitability goals. And I think as the, the next couple of quarters unfold, we'll, we'll start to gradually look outside and see you know, are there opportunities to inorganically do something, particularly in terms of new market entry? So as we think about Africa, uh, we think about Latin America, the broader MENA region. So some of these markets out there that we're not in today, where there are already players present uh, and potentially also where there are potentially other technology companies that are doing sort of specialized work that is relevant to our platform. I think those are the kind of opportunities that might be interesting. So, but I think for, you know, unlike some other players maybe that are out there on this backside uh, as target companies, I think we we haven't really made that a conscious focus. Uh, and I think we're, we're just laser focused on our product and, and kind of taking care of business as it is. And just looking at the public markets, I guess, in general, you know, we, we've seen a lot of, well, not a lot, but, you know, we've seen some other SPAC deals in, in, in this space with companies with somewhat similar business models. We spoke to get around uh, last year at some point. And, um, and just given, you know, some of the, the macro conditions that are present in the market right now, I mean, some of those companies have had a, a bit of a tough time, but, you know, I think obviously investors are focused on on certain metrics and, and just, I guess, seeing how some, some peer companies have done uh, once they've gotten to the public markets, what do you think differentiates um, the Zoom car and what are some of the, the big metrics to really focus on that makes Zoom car sort of different once you once you're there? Yeah, I think for one, you know, we are 100% asset light, 100% marketplace, so no liabilities in the balance sheet. You're very very clean that way, and it's it's something which allows us for rapid supply scale without really any meaningful capital. So I think that really helps fundamentally. And if you look at our take rate, I think the embedded economics of the business model itself certainly provide a big advantage. That's one. Now, two, I think if you look at the market dynamics, so we have, as, as kind of highlighted, we have about 95% market share of the organized markets within car rental car sharing in all four countries that we operate. And if you look at Africa, Latin America, Middle East more broadly, you know, these other countries that we can go into have similar dynamics where we can step in pretty quickly in our view and, and create similar market dynamics. And so the point is when you have that kind of market share and, and you have that sort of product uh, advantage, it, it certainly allows you to do things that you might otherwise not be able to do. So in terms of the pricing power that you have, the embedded unit economics. So, so that really gives you that sort of demand side and supply side flywheel and the network effects, which is pretty powerful, that halo. So having that kind of market share really allows us to stand out in terms of what we can do. And I think the sustainable profitability in terms of that steady state EBITDA profile as a ultimately public company uh, becomes really important. And, and so I think that gives a, a significant advantage. And all of these are, are markets with very, very robust gagers that have that potential. And they're, they're all kind of meaningfully sort of uh, at, the, at the top of the, the growth curve for car share and car rentals. So yeah, I mean, I think in, in total, you know, it's, it's really the, the market and then the product and execution, which are, you know, I'd say quite different here. Yeah, totally. And, and and just also, you know, I mean, one thing that always hangs over these a little bit is as one piece of uncertainty moving forward. I mean, we've seen the averages, but just the, the total cash proceeds in, in these deals is something of a of an open question before you get to the very end of things. And just given that you have so many interesting initiatives sort of in front of you, how much does your rollout and your, your business plan change based on what that kind of final cash amount is once you get this thing to close? Right. And so I, I think for us, you know, the, the beauty of, of where we are today is that you know, we don't have any capex. Uh, we have very nominal opex, and so, you know, it's 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 really the the overall business today at a, at a contribution level 
is you know, extremely well placed. So we actually are on the positive side there. So it actually gives us opportunity to, to flex in, in different different ways. So in, in aggregate, you know, we it's not like we go out there and we require hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. It's really a fraction of that that is required for us to, to be you know, fully sustainable, fully profitable, as well as be able to execute on our operating plan, et cetera, you know, as, as you might have seen in some of the, the public documents there. So, you know, the expectation here is that we'll, we'll be around 50 million or so of capital to company uh, over the next couple of months. Uh, and that you know, we believe we're, we're very much tracking towards that outcome uh, over the next few months. And so we're excited to to kind of get to the, the DSPAC finish line here in, in relatively short order uh, with that kind of capital delivery. And, and we believe that's going to put in in a position and then some uh, to execute and and be you know quite healthy and quite sustainable for for a long time to come. That's really interesting. And one other question of a sort of I had that came up while we were talking here about the differentiation between the different markets we're sort of talking about here is that you know we've seen companies with sort of mobility uh, marketplaces in developed markets, particularly in the U.S., but really all of them come into various levels of conflict with kind of local and and various authorities and regulatory bodies and things like that. But I imagine it's a very different situation in the markets you operate in. What what are some of the I guess the lay of the lands when it comes to regulatory when it comes to some of the the agencies you, you'd be dealing with. Sure. So I think you, when it comes to anything from a regulatory lens, you always have to look on a country by country basis, right? So at the end of the day, you know, no two countries are exactly alike. Having said all that, I think the one commonality that you see across emerging markets is that they're a lot younger in terms of sort of structured government infrastructure uh, when it comes to sort of rules and regs and just frameworks and regulatory bodies, et cetera. So it's generally, it's it's more, I would say, unorganized and it's earlier stage uh, around a lot of this compared to say US or Western Europe or maybe Japan or, or even China for that matter. And so, you know, which, which comes with pluses and minuses as, as anything would, as you'd expect. But I think what is helpful is that you know, they're, they're not overly prescriptive at this stage, and nor do we really expect them to become overly prescriptive because, you know, our space, for one, is a sort of a self-drive space in the sense, not you know, self-drive from an autonomy standpoint, but from a you-drive-yourself perspective. So, you know, that means it's not a labor-heavy model. So it's a labor-light model in that sense. It's really self-serve. So, you know, we don't really work with other third-party contractors or you know, we don't you know, directly work or engage with, with unionized uh, staff. And so, you know, it's a very light model. So generally speaking, in, in those ways, government doesn't get uh, particularly involved uh, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, which is what we've seen. And you know, that's what we anticipate would, would broadly be the case uh, as we go ahead. Uh, and then also the insurance space is also... Uh, much sort of, I would say, younger, more fledgling. Uh, and so as a result, uh, it, these countries are also not nearly as litigious as the US or as Western Europe, um, which again, you know, has uh, advantages, disadvantages, I suppose. But, you know, I think certainly what it does do is it creates more of uh, simplicity when it comes to sort of how you think about, you know, coverage for any sort of vehicle damage on a trip. And, and so that makes things a lot more straightforward uh, for a Zoom car than let's say maybe a Toro or maybe like an Airbnb uh, on the on the property side. So I think that definitely is an important distinction. So I think the the, the call out here is that, you know, it always evolves. Um, but I think right now, uh, what we're seeing is there's generally a, a, certainly a very reasonable attitude here towards keeping it light. We, we have a very robust sort of multi-pronged validation system that's there uh, to validate both guests and hosts to ensure that, you know, these are very genuine customers on both sides. And the, the two-way rating and review system that we have 
which we very much vet thoroughly through our own data science engines uh, is actually also very helpful because it provides transparency and it allows visibility then for the guest and the host to better discern quality. Uh, and that's actually really important because that's ultimately the input to, to quote unquote safety, right? And then at the same time, again, leveraging this these engines with our overall sort of computer vision engines tied to, to images to make sure that, you know, when you upload your image, your selfie and your, your license, that corresponds to your other identification. So that's another layer of safety and security and protection. And at the same time, the, the ability to have sort of automated GPS-based alerts and the ability to remotely disable engines uh, if there's any sort of driver malfeasance actually is another major, I would say, safety feature for the host. Uh, so that's that's something that also plays out, in our view, actually very helpfully, very, very effectively uh, for both sides. And so of all of the different opportunities that Zoomcar is attacking right now and all of the changes coming to the mobility space, what's the change that you're most excited about in your sector? I would say the transformation to electric vehicles, certainly, um, because, I mean, certainly autonomous would be there over the next several further, maybe 10 years, 15 years. But I, I think electric is, of course, here and now, and certainly here and now in the US, Europe, and China, but it, it's starting to become here and now in the emerging markets as well. So over the next two or three years, you'll, you'll see the emerging markets really catch up in a more meaningful way to the Western markets uh, on the EV side. And the reason why EVs are so powerful for a platform like ours is that, you know, they're incredibly low cost to operate. Right. And so for a host, for them, you know, once that, you know, CapEx is there, I mean, once the vehicle is shared on the platform, they, they can effectively fulfill for next to nothing. Uh, and then they can charge and command a premium because there's just a lot of demand. A lot of people want to drive an EV. This is just a much better driving experience, uh, irrespective of, of who's the manufacturer. So I think that you know, the fact that you have all this sort of inelasticity on the demand side, and then you have a low OPEX on the host side, it's really compelling for the host, right? Because they're in the hand, earning opportunities much higher. And of, of course, there's that the positive flywheel from an environmental ESG standpoint, which is certainly compelling as well, uh, which is kind of the core mission statement for Zoomcar, which is all about really creating a sustainable environment within the urban built landscape for emerging markets. So, so that's that's kind of the company's mission statement. And so I think it's in many ways at an existential level, it's fulfilling our broader mission statement, but it's also allowing for really truly disproportionate value for both your guest and your host. We're really laser focused on you know something tied to kind of the intersection of uh, sort of personalization as as well as sort of IoT and and what I mean by that is so our, our personalization engines that we have from a technology product data science standpoint in our belief really gives disproportionate value to our guests and hosts. Our, our guests we can give very very surgical targeted recommendations on vehicle selection in our catalog, and so we can surface the best most relevant car with the best possible price, best possible rating, best possible location on a consistent basis to the guest. Uh, and I think that's really powerful. And that's really a lot of data science and engineering heavy lifting, uh, which is, is not so easy to do. Uh, and, and we have tens of thousands of vehicles that help, of course, but it, it's the, the, the backend algo which providing that. And then on the host side, we, we have the ability to provide sort of significant analytics and meaningful insighting for them so that they can maximize their business opportunities as well in, in terms of how they uh, represent themselves, how they price themselves, how they describe themselves, place themselves, photograph themselves. So all of that to, to make the vehicles as compelling as possible. Uh, and I think that's, again, driven by 
data science, uh, personalization engines, recommendation engines. And I think that's really important. At the same time, we, we do meaningful work on the IoT side uh, to have a seamless one-touch keyless entry. So you just tap your phone, on the app and you can remotely unlock unlock the vehicle in a seamless frictionless way so as a guest you don't have to interact at all with the host it's all async so it's all asynchronous and you know very very seamless that way without any friction and there's also an ability to to message the, the host for anything during the trip so all of that is, is connected in, into a you know we believe a very seamless flow for both our guests and hosts so those investments in sort of your know, hardware plus software and you know so that you know broader middleware layer uh, we, we believe it's created some additional value proposition for us as a platform, as a service. Mm -hmm.